Chapter Nine of Sixty Years in Southern California, eighteen fifty three to nineteen thirteen, by Harris Newmark. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Chapter Nine Familiar Home Scenes, eighteen fifty four. Many of the houses, as I have related, were clustered around and north of the Plaza Church, while the hills surrounding the Pueblo to the west were almost bare. These same hills have since been subdivided and graded to accommodate the West Lake, the Wilshire, the West Temple, and other sections. Main and Spring Streets were laid out beyond First, but they were very sparsely settled, while to the east of Main and extending up to that street there were many large vineyards without a single break as far south as the Ninth Street of today, unless we accept a narrow and short lane there. To enable the reader to form an accurate impression of the time spent in getting to a nearby point, I will add that, to reach William Wolfskin's home, which was in the neighborhood of the present Arcade Depot, one was obliged to travel down to Aliso Street, thence to Alameda, and then south on Alameda to Wolfskin's Orchard. From Spring Street, west and as far as the coast, there was one huge field, practically unimproved and undeveloped, the swamp lands of which were covered with tools. All of this land, from the heart of the present retail district to the city limits, belonged to the municipality. I inclined to the opinion that both Ord and Hancock had already surveyed in this southwestern district, but through there, nevertheless, no single street has as yet been cut. Not merely at the plaza, but throughout Los Angeles, most of the houses were built of adobe, or mud mixed with straw, and dried for months in the sun and several fine dwellings of this kind were constructed after I came. The composition was of such a nature that unless protected by roofs and verandas, footnote, verandas, spoken of locally as corridors, from which fact I may use both terms interchangeably, and footnote, the mud would slowly wash away. The walls, however, also requiring months in which to dry, were generally three or four feet thick, and to this, as well as to the nature of the material, may be attributed the fact that the houses in the summer season were cool and comfortable, while in winter they were warm and cheerful. They were usually rectangular in shape, and were invariably provided with patios and corridors. There was no such thing as a basement under a house, and floors were frequently earthen. Conventionality prescribed no limit as to the number of rooms, an adobe frequently having a sitting-room, a dining-room, a kitchen, and as many bedrooms as were required. But there were few, if any, frills for the mere sake of style. Most adobes were but one story in height, although there were a few two-story houses, and it is my recollection that in such cases the second story was reached from the outside. Everything about an adobe was emblematic of hospitality. The doors, heavy and often apparently homemade, were wide, and the windows were deep. In private houses the doors were locked with a key, but in some of the stores they were fastened with a bolt fitted into iron receptacles on either side. The windows, swinging on hinges, opened inward and were locked in the center. There were few curtains or blinds, wooden shutters an inch thick also fastening in the center being generally used instead. If there were such conveniences as hearths and fireplaces, I cannot recollect them, although I think that here and there the brasero, or pan and hot coals, was still employed. There were no chimneys, and the smoke, as from the kitchen stove, escaped through the regular stacks leading out through a pane in the window or a hole in the wall. The porches, also spoken of as verandas, and rather wide, were supported by equidistant perpendicular posts, and when an adobe had two stories, 
the veranda was also double-storied few if any vines grew around these verandas in early days largely because of the high cost of water for the same reason there were almost no gardens the roofs which as i have intimated proved as necessary to preserve the adobe as to afford protection from the semi-tropical sun were generally covered with asphalt and were usually flat in order to keep the tar from running off as well as i can recollect vincente salcido or salcito as his name was also written who lived in or somewhere near nigger alley was the only man then engaged in the business of mending pitch roofs when winter approached and the first rainfall produced leaks there was a general demand for salcido's services and a great scramble among owners of buildings to obtain them such was the need in fact that more than one family drowned out while waiting was compelled to move to the drier quarters of relatives or friends there to stay until the roofer could attend to their own houses under a huge kettle put up in the public street salcido set fire to some wood threw in his pitch and melted it then after he or a helper had climbed onto the roof the molten pitch was hauled up in buckets and poured over those troublesome leaks much of this tar was imported from the north but some was obtained in this locality particularly from so-called springs on the hancock ranch which for a long time have furnished great quantities of the useful if unattractive substance this asphalt was later used for sidewalks and even into the eighties was employed as fuel to return to salcido i might add that in summer the pitch roofer had no work at all besides the adobes with their asphalt roofs some houses erected within the first quarter of the nineteenth century were covered with tiles the most notable tiled building was the old church whose roof was unfortunately removed when the edifice was so extensively renovated the carrillo home was topped with these ancient tiles as were also jose maria abila's residence vincente sanchez's two-story adobe south of the plaza and the alvarado house on first street between main and los angeles streets it was my impression that there were no bricks in los angeles when i first came although about eighteen fifty four or eighteen fifty five jacob weixel had the first regular brickyard in conversation with old-timers however many years ago i was assured that captain jesse hunter whom i recall had built a kiln not far from the later site of the potomac block on fort street between second and third and that as early as eighteen fifty three he had put up a brick building on the west side of main street about one hundred and fifty feet south of the present site of the bullard block this was for mayor nichols who paid hundred thirty dollars a thousand for the new and more attractive kind of building material this pioneer brick building has long since disappeared hunter seems to have come to los angeles alone and to have been followed across the plains by his wife two sons and three daughters taking up his permanent residence here in eighteen fifty six one of the daughters married a man named burke who conducted a blacksmith and wagon shop in hunter's building on main street hunter died in eighteen seventy four dr william a hamill father of sheriff william hamill who came to california during the gold excitement of forty nine had one of the first red brick houses in los angeles on san pedro street between second and third sometime in eighteen fifty three or perhaps in eighteen fifty four the first building erected by the public in los angeles county was put together here of brick baked in the second kiln ever fired in the city it was the town jail on the site of the present phillips block footnote recently raised and footnote at the northwest corner of spring and franklin streets this building took the place of the first county jail a rude adobe that stood on the hill back of the present national government building in that jail i have understood there were no cells and prisoners were fastened by chains to logs outside 
Zanja water was being used for irrigation when I arrived. A system of seven or eight zanjas or open ditches originated, I have no doubt, by the Catholic fathers, was then in operation, although it was not placed under the supervision of a zanjero or water commissioner until 1854. These small surface canals connected at the source with the Zanja Madre, or mother ditch, on the north side of the town from which they received their supply, the Zanja Madre itself being fed from the river at a point a long way from the town. The Zanjero issued permits, for which application had to be made some days in advance, authorizing the use of the water for irrigation purposes. A certain amount was paid for the use of this water during a period of twelve hours, without any limit as to the quantity consumed, and the purchaser was permitted to draw his supply both day and night. Water for domestic uses was a still more expensive luxury. Inhabitants living in the immediate neighborhood of Zanjas, or near the river, helped themselves, but their less fortunate brethren were served by a carrier who charged fifty cents a week for one bucket a day, while he did not deliver on Sunday at all extra requirements were met on the same basis and in order to avoid an interruption in the supply prompt settlement of the charge had to be made every saturday evening this character was known as bill the waterman he was a tall american about thirty or thirty-five years old he had a mustache wore long rubber boots coming nearly to his waist and presented the general appearance of a laboring man and his somewhat rickety vehicle drawn by two superannuated horses slowly conveyed the man and his barrel of about sixty gallons capacity from house to house he was a wise dispenser and quite alert to each household's needs bill obtained his supply from the los angeles river where at best it was none too clean in part owing to the frequent passage of the river by man and beast animals of all kinds including cattle horses sheep pigs mules and donkeys crossed and recrossed the stream continually so that the mud was incessantly stirred up and the polluted product proved unpalatable and even undoubtedly unhealthful to make matters worse, the river and the Zanjas were the favorite bathing places, all the urchins of the hamlet disporting themselves there daily, while most of the adults also frequently immersed themselves. Both the yet unbridged stream and the Zanjas, therefore, were repeatedly contaminated, although common sense should have protected the former to a greater or less extent, while as to the latter there were ordinances drawn up by the common council of eighteen fifty which prohibited the throwing of filth into fresh water designed for common use and also forbade the washing of clothes on the zanja banks this latter regulation was disobeyed by the native women who continued to gather there dip their soiled garments in the water place them on stones and beat them with sticks a method then popular for the extraction of dirt besides bill the waterman Dan Sheik was a water vendor, but at a somewhat later date. Proceeding to the Zanja in a curious old cart, he would draw the water he needed, fresh every morning, and make deliveries at customers' houses for a couple of dollars a month. Sheik forsook this business, however, and went into draying, making a specialty of meeting Banning's coaches and transferring the passengers to their several destinations. He was a frugal man and accumulated enough to buy the southwest corner of Franklin and Spring Streets as a result he left property of considerable value he died about twenty-five years ago mrs shake who was a sister of john froling died in eighteen seventy four just one more reference to the drinking water of that period when delivered to the customer it was emptied into ollas or urn-shaped vessels made from burned clay or terracotta every family and every store was provided with at least one of these containers which 
being slightly porous, possessed the virtue, of particular value at a time when there was no ice, of keeping the water cool and refreshing. The oja, commonly in use, had a capacity of four or five gallons, and was usually suspended from the ceiling of a porch or other convenient place, while attached to this domestic reservoir, as a rule, was a long-handled dipper, generally made from a gourd. Filters were not in use, in consequence of which fastidious people washed out their oijas very frequently. These wide-mouthed pots recall to me an appetizing Spanish dish known as oja podrida, a stew consisting of various spice meats, chopped fine, and an equally varied assortment of vegetables, partaken of separately, all bringing to mind, perhaps, Thackeray's sentimental Ballad of Bouillabaisse considering these inconveniences how surprising it is that the common council in eighteen fifty three should have frowned upon judge william g dryden's proposition to distribute in pipes all the water needed for domestic use on may sixteenth eighteen fifty four the first masonic lodge then and now known as forty two received its charter having worked under special dispensation since the preceding december the first officers chosen were h p dorsey master j elias senior warden thomas foster junior warden james r barton treasurer timothy foster secretary jacob rich senior deacon and w a smith tyler for about three decades after my arrival smallpox epidemics visited us somewhat regularly every other year and the effect on the town was exceedingly bad the whole population was on such a friendly footing that every death made a very great impression the native element was always averse to vaccination and other sanitary measures everybody objected to isolation and disinfecting was unknown in more than one familiar case the surviving members of a stricken family went into the homes of their kinsmen notwithstanding the danger of contagion is it any wonder therefore when such ignorance was universal that the pest spread alarmingly and that the death rate was high the smallpox wagon, dubbed the Black Maria, was a frequent sight on the streets of Los Angeles during these sieges. There was an isolated pest house near the Chavez Ravine, but the patients of the better class were always treated at home, where the sanitation was never good, and at best the community was seriously exposed. Consternation seized the public mind, communication with the outside world was disturbed, and these epidemics were the invariable signal for business disorder and crises. This matter of primitive sanitation reminds me of an experience. To accommodate an old iron bathtub that I wished to set up in my Main Street home in the late 60s, I was obliged to select one of the bedrooms. Since, when my adobe was built, the idea of having a separate bathroom in a house had never occurred to any owner. I connected it with the zanja at the rear of my lot by means of a wooden conduit, which, although it did not join very closely, answered all purposes for the discharge of wastewater. One of my children for several years slept in this combination bath and bedroom, and although the plumbing was as old-fashioned as it well could be, yet during all that time there was no sickness in our family. It was fortunate, indeed, that the adobe construction of the fifties rendered houses practically fireproof, since in the absence of a water system a bucket brigade was all there was to fight a fire with, and this rendered but poor service. I remember such a brigade at work, some years after I came, in the vicinity of the bell block, when a chain of helpers formed a relay from the nearest zanja to the blazing structure. Buckets were passed briskly along from person to person, as in the animated scene described by Schiller and the well-known lines of Das Lied von der Glocke. Durch der Hand Lanketta um de Wette fliegt der Eimer. Footnote 
translated by Perry Warden, for the centenary of the Song of the Bell. Through each hand, close joined and waiting, emulating, flies the pale. End footnote. A process which was continued until the fire had exhausted itself. Francis Mellis had used a little hand cart, but for lack of water it was generally useless. Instead of fire bells announcing to the people that a conflagration was in progress, the discharging of pistols in rapid succession gave the alarm, and was the signal for a general fusillade through the neighboring streets. Indeed, this method of sounding a fire alarm was used as late as the eighties. On the breaking out of fires, neighbors and friends rushed to assist the victim in saving what they could of his property. On account of the inadequate facilities for extinguishing anything like a conflagration, it transpired that insurance companies would not for some time accept risks in Los Angeles. If I am not mistaken, S. Lazard obtained the first protection late in the fifties and paid a premium of four percent. The policy was issued by the Hamburg Bremen Company through Aseldorfer Brothers of San Francisco, who also imported foreign merchandise, and Lazard, thereafter, as a Los Angeles agent for the Hamburg Bremen Company, was the first insurance underwriter here of whom I have any knowledge. Aseldorfer Brothers, it is also interesting to note, imported the first Swedish matches brought into California, perhaps having in mind cause and effect with profit at both ends. They put them on the retail market in Los Angeles at 25 cents a package. This matter of fires calls to mind an interesting feature of the city when I first saw it. When Henry, or Enrique Dalton, sailed from England, he shipped a couple of corrugated iron buildings, taking them to South America, where he used them for several years. On coming to Los Angeles, he brought the buildings with him, and they were set up at the site of the present corner of Spring and Court Streets. In a sense, therefore, these much-transported iron structures, one of which, in 1858, I rented as a storeroom for wool, came to be among the earliest fireproof buildings here. As early as 1854, the need of better communication between Los Angeles and the outside world was beginning to be felt, and in the summer of that year, the supervisors, D.W. Alexander, S.C. Foster, J. Sepulveda, C. Aguilar, and S.S. Thompson, voted to spend $1,000 to open a wagon road over the mountains between the San Fernando Mission and the San Francisco Rancho. A rather broad trail already existed there, but such was its grade that many a pioneer, compelled to use a windlass or other contrivance to let down his wagon in safety, will never forget the real perils of the descent. For years it was a familiar experience with stages, on which I sometimes traveled, to attach chains or boards to retard their downward movement. Nor were passengers even then without anxiety until the hill or mountainside had been passed. During 1854, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Newmark and family, whom I had met the year before, for a few hours in San Francisco, arrived here and located in the one-story adobe owned by John Goler and adjoining his blacksmith shop. There were six children, Matilda, Meyer J., Sarah, Edward, Caroline, and Harriet, all of whom had been born in New York City. With their advent, my personal environment immediately changed. They provided me with a congenial home, and as they at once began to take part in local social activities, I soon became well acquainted. My aunt took charge of my English education and taught me to spell, read, and write in that language, and I have always held her efforts in my behalf in grateful appreciation. As a matter of fact, having so early been thrown into contact with Spanish-speaking neighbors and patrons, I learned Spanish before I acquired English. The Newmarks had left New York on December 15, 1852, on the ship Carrington, T.B. French commanding, to make the trip around the Horn, San Francisco being their destination. 
after a voyage for the most part pleasant although not altogether free from disagreeable features and marked by much rough weather they reached the golden gate having been four months and five days on the ocean one of the enjoyable incidents en route was an old-fashioned celebration in which neptune took part when they crossed the equator in a diary of that voyage kept by meyer j newmark mention is made that quote, our democratic president franklin pierce and vice president william r king were inaugurated march fourth eighteen fifty three which reminds me that some forty years later judge h a pierce the president's cousin and his wife who was of literary proclivities came to be my neighbors in los angeles mr and mrs newmark and their family remained in san francisco until eighteen fifty four joseph newmark formerly newmark born june fifteenth seventeen ninety nine was i assume the first to adopt the english form of the name he was generally religious and exalted in character his wife rosa whom he married in new york in eighteen thirty five was born in london on march seventeenth eighteen o eight he came to america in eighteen twenty four spent a few years in new york and resided for a while in somerset connecticut where on january twenty first eighteen thirty one he joined the masonic fraternity during his first residence in new york he started the elm street synagogue one of the earliest in america in eighteen forty we find him in st louis a pioneer indeed five years later he was in dubuque iowa then a frontier village in eighteen forty six he once more pitched his tent in new york and during this sojourn he organized the worcester street congregation immediately after reaching los angeles he brought into existence the los angeles hebrew benevolent society which met for some time at his home on sunday evenings and which i think was the first charitable institution in the city its principal objects were to care for the sick to pay proper respect according to jewish ritual to the dead and to look after the jewish cemetery which was laid out about that time so that the society at once became a real spiritual force and continued so for several years the first president was jacob elias although mr newmark had never served as a salaried rabbi he had been ordained and was permitted to officiate and one of the immediate results of his influence was the establishment of worship on jewish holidays under the auspices of the society named the first service was held in the rear room of an adobe owned by john temple joseph newmark also inspired the purchase of land for the jewish cemetery after rabbi edelman came my uncle continued on various occasions to assist him when in course of time the population of los angeles increased the responsibilities of a hebrew benevolent society were extended although a jewish organization and none but jews could become members of it or receive burial in the jewish cemetery its aim was to give relief as long as its financial condition would permit to every worthy person that appeared whoever he was or whatever his creed recalling this efficient organization i may say that i believe myself to be one of but two survivors among the charter members s lazard being the other kiln messer was another pioneer who came around the horn about that time although he arrived here from germany a year later than i did and during his voyage he had a trying experience in a shipwreck off cape verde where with his comrades he had to wait a couple of months before another vessel could be signalled even then he could get no farther toward his destination the golden gate than rio de janeiro where he was delayed five or six months more finally reaching san francisco he took to mining but weakened by fever an experience common among the gold seekers he made his way to los angeles after brewing beer for a while at the corner of third and main streets messer bought a twenty-acre vineyard which in eighteen fifty seven he increased by another purchase to forty-five or fifty acres 
and it was his good fortune that this property was so located as to be needed by the santa fe railroad in eighteen eighty eight as a terminal toward the end of the seventies messer moderately well-to-do was a grocer on the corner of rose and first street and about eighteen eighty five he retired joseph newmark brought with him to los angeles a chinese servant to whom he paid one hundred dollars a month and as far as i know this mongolian was the first to come to our city this domestic item has additional interest perhaps because it was but five or six years before that the first chinese to emigrate from the celestial kingdom to california two men and a lone woman had come to san francisco in the ship eagle from hong kong a year later there were half a hundred chinamen in the territory while at the end of still another year during the gold excitement nearly a thousand chinese entered the golden gate the housekeeping experiences of mr and mrs joseph newmark remind me that it was not easy in the early days to get satisfactory domestic service indians negroes and sometimes mexicans were employed until the arrival of more chinese and the coming of white girls joseph newmark when i lived with his family employed in addition to the chinaman an indian named pedro who had come with his wife from temecula and whose remuneration was fifty cents a day and these servants attended to most of the household duties the annual fiesta at temecula used to attract pedro and his better half and while they were absent the newmark girls did the work my new home was very congenial not the least of its attractions being the family associations at mealtime the opportunities for obtaining a variety of food were not as good perhaps as they are to-day and yet some delicacies were more in evidence among these i might mention wild game and chickens turkeys of all poultry were the scarcest and most prized all in all our ordinary fare has not changed so much except in the use of mutton certain vegetables ice and a few dainties there was no extravagance in the furnishing of pioneer homes few people coming to los angeles expected to locate permanently they usually planned to accumulate a small competency and then return to their native heaths in consequence little attention was paid to quality or styles and it is hard to convey a comprehensive ideal of the prevailing lack of ordinary comforts for many years the inner walls of adobes were whitewashed a method of mural finish not the most agreeable since the coating so easily came off and only in the later periods of frame houses did we have calcimined and hard finished wall surfaces just when papered and tinted walls came in i do not remember but they were long delayed furniture was plain and none too plentiful and glassware and tableware were of an inferior grade certain vegetables were abundant truck gardening having been introduced here in the early fifties by andrew briswalter an alsatian by birth and an original character he first operated on san pedro street where he rented a tract of land and peddled his vegetables in a wheelbarrow charging big prices so quickly did he prosper that he was soon able to buy a piece of land as well as a horse and wagon when he died in the eighties he bequeathed a large estate consisting of city and county acreage and lots in the disposition of which he unrighteously cut off his only niece playa del rey was later built on some of his land acres of fruit trees fronting on maine in the neighborhood of the present ninth and tenth streets and extending far in an easterly direction formed another part of his holding it was on this land that briswalter lived until his last illness he bought this tract from o w childs it having originally belonged to h c cardwell a son-in-law of william wolfskill the same cardwell who introduced here on january seventh eighteen fifty six the heretofore unknown seedling strawberries one mumus was in the field nearly as soon as briswalter a few years later chinese vegetable men came to monopolize this trade most of their gardens neighbored on what is now figueroa street north of pico and then as now they peddled their wares from wagons 
wild celery grew in quantities around the zanjas but was not much liked cultivated celery on the other hand was in demand and was brought from the north whence we also imported most of our cabbage cauliflower and asparagus but after a while the chinese also cultivated celery and when in the nineties e a curtis d e smelzer and others failed in an effort to grow celery curtis fell back on the chinese gardeners the orientals though pestered by envious workmen finally made a success of the industry helping to establish what is now a most important local agricultural activity these chinese vegetable gardeners by the way came to practice a trick footnote history repeats itself in 1915 ranchers at zelza were accused of appropriating water from the new aqueduct under cover of night without paying for it and footnote designed to reduce their expenses and at which they were sometimes caught having bargained with the authorities for a small quantity of water they would cut the zanjas while the zanjero or his assistants slept steal the additional water needed and before the arrival of the zanjero at daybreak close the openings j wesley potts was an early arrival having tramped across the plains all the way from texas in eighteen fifty two reaching los angeles in september at first he could obtain nothing to do but haul dirt in a hand-cart for the spasmodic patching up of the streets but when he had earned five or six dollars in that way he took to peddling fruit first carrying it around in a basket then he had a fruit stand getting the gold fever however potts went to the mines but despairing at last of realizing anything there he returned to los angeles and raised vegetables introducing among other things the first locally grown sweet potatoes put on the market a stroke of enterprise recalling j e pleasant's early venture in cultivating garden peas later he was widely known as a weather prophet with predictions quite as likely to be worthless as to come true the prickly pear the fruit of the cactus was common in early los angeles it grew in profusion over all this southern country but particularly so around san gabriel at which place it was found in almost obstructing quantities and prickly pears bordered the gardens of the roundhouse where they were plucked by visitors ugly enough things to handle they were nevertheless full of juice and proved refreshing and palatable when properly peeled pomegranates and kinses were also numerous but they were not cultivated for that trade sycamore and oak trees were seen here and there while the willow was evident in almost jungle profuseness especially around river banks and along the borders of the lanes wild mustard charmingly variegated the landscape and chaparral obscured many of the hills and rising ground in winter the ground was thickly covered with burr clover and the poetically named alfilaria writing of vegetables and fruit i naturally think of one of california's most popular products the sandia or watermelon and of its plenteousness in those more monotonous days when many and many a carreta load was brought to the indulging town the melons were sold direct from the vehicles as well as in stores and the street seemed to be the principal place for the consumption of the luscious fruit it was a very common sight to see indians and others sitting along the roads their faces buried in the green pink depths some old-timers troubled with the diseases of the kidney believing that there was virtue in watermelon seeds boiled them and used the tea medicinally fish caught at san pedro and peddled around town was a favorite item of food during the cooler months of the year the pescadero or vendor used a loud fish horn whose deep but not melodious tones announced to the expectant housewife that he was at hand with a load of seafood owing to the poorer facilities for catching them only a few varieties of deep water fish such as barracuda yellowtail and rockfish were sold 
Somewhere I have seen it stated that in 1854 O. W. Childs brought the first hive of bees from San Francisco at a cost of $150, but as nearly as I can recollect, a man named Logan owned the first beehives and was, therefore, the pioneer honey producer. I remember paying him $3 for a three-pound box of comb honey, but I have forgotten the date of this transaction. In 1860, Cyrus Burdick purchased several swarms of bees and had no difficulty in selling the honey at $1 a pound. By the fall of 1861, the bee industry had so expanded that Perry and Woodworth, as I have stated, devoted part of their time to the making of beehives. J. E. Pleasance of Santiago Canyon, known also for his cashmere goats, was another pioneer bee man and received a gold medal for his exhibit at the New Orleans Exposition. End of chapter 9